This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Aaron Harris, and you are tuning into The Football Odyssey. My guest today is Clayton Truder, the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. I think this is a conversation that all you sports history junkies will enjoy, and a lot of you Atlanta sports fans out there. So if you liked what you heard, feel free to subscribe, share, and reach out and let us know what you think. I've also posted a link in the description so you could buy Clayton's book, which I highly recommend. As always, thank you for listening, and now enjoy the show. What's going on, Clayton? Thanks for joining me. Oh, not a whole lot. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. It's a real pleasure. I've, I've listened to a couple of the past episodes. I've listened to Michael McCambridge and uh, uh, the Bills Mafia guy who played at Alfred. I can't think of his name. I really enjoyed that episode, too. So it's a pleasure to be a part of the podcast. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, my buddy Charlie from when I lived in Atlanta, actually. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, that's why this uh, topic was interesting, because I lived in Atlanta from 2018 to 2021. Uh, and I'm curious, did anybody, have you heard a lot of uh, reception from sports fans in Atlanta? Have any of them got in touch with you about the book? Oh, many, many fans. They've told me, I, the thing, one of the most pleasing receptions to the book I've had is people who live during this time period who said, who've told me that they felt like I did, I had a good sense of what the time and place was like. And it took me a decade to write the book. So I, I'm, I'm very glad. And I took very seriously the idea that I'm presenting somebody else's life, somebody else's experiences that I should try to present it uh, in as nuanced, nuanced a fashion as possible. So I've heard very positive things from people who've uh, particularly lived in that time period. Was there anybody that presumed a lot about the title and kind of got pissed at you about Loserville? Oh, oh, indeed. Particularly the night they won the World Series, I got a lot, a lot of aha DMs uh, in, in response to that. So certainly, uh, I mean, the book's title is in no way a commentary on the present of Atlanta sports. I mean, Atlanta sports is a winnersville, if nothing else, with the Braves, with Atlanta United, with the University of Georgia down the road in Athens. It's been a very successful sports town in recent years. The title is a more a commentary on the 60s and 70s and was a term that was introduced by Atlantans themselves for what was going on there. See, prior to this past year, I almost would have agreed that that's still the title because even though Atlanta sports have still been doing well, it always feels like there's this black cloud that had followed them, especially for UGA fans, for Falcons fans, Braves fans, maybe not as much, but maybe a little bit of that. And United fans, definitely not because they're very successful. But I mean, I just remember every year sitting in a bar watching UGA versus Alabama and just falling short like, man, this just has to be heartbreaking year after year. Oh, without question. And, and I think for the Braves fans, they faced a similar situation, whereas UGA was clearly one of the best programs in college football for many, many years before they finally got a championship, uh, their first one since 1980. The Braves were in a similar situation. They win the one World Series in 1995 during the playoffs every single year. So the worst moments of their seasons are on the biggest stage. So it seemed a lot worse than it actually was for their fans as well. Now, your education, from what I understand, is actually in post-World War II cities in America? Yes. Yeah, I have a PhD in U.S. history from Boston College. I would call myself a historian of American cities. I'm interested in the economics of cities, social change, uh, cultural aspects of cities, and sports plays into that quite well. Is there one city in particular, sports aside, that you find extremely fascinating? 
I mean, I lived in Boston for a decade. I find Boston very fascinating. It's where my second book is, is actually about Boston. So, I mean, I had no prior connection to Atlanta. I spent a decade thinking about it, but uh, I, 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 there's a number of cities I find very interesting. Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. Uh, almost every, every city of significance has a, a rather unique story and many interesting uh, facets to it. And, and it's for whatever reason, I, I'm a person who grew up in, a, who grew up in rural Vermont. Uh, I'm back in rural Vermont teaching now, but uh, I guess it was just so novel to me. Just, just the the I guess the way the cities came together, it it became a source of interest for me. Did you ever uh, learn about Robert Moses? Oh, certainly, yes. I mean, uh, I mean Robert Caro, who wrote The Power Broker, is a huge influence on my approach to writing as a historian. And in many ways, the structure of my book is is influenced by Caro's books, both as a uh, book about Moses, the power broker, as well as his LBJ biographies. Uh, he takes a very comprehensive look uh, through the prism of a particular person. And, th and that's certainly what I aim to do with my own research, too. One, it's amazing how that book shows what you can do without actually being in power, about someone always pulling the strings behind the ones who are in office or in public facing positions, you know? Oh, without question. And in many ways, you see that story in this book as well with stadium authorities and various public entities that are unelected playing these pro profound roles in the way cities develop. So I, I think many of the lessons one gets from the story of Robert Moses, one can find not only in Atlanta, but many other cities where a lot of unelected authority ends up playing a profound role over the way cities end up looking in the uh, everyday lives of the people who, who reside in those places. Now, did you want to be an author from the time that you were young? Absolutely. I, uh, I was going through a diary of mine when I was nine years old, and, and I had a list of goals. Uh, I didn't meet most of them, which involved playing various pro sports and being in an important heavy metal band and stuff. That didn't happen, but, but write a book was on the list, so I accomplished one of my nine-year-old goals, I guess. So yeah, from a very young age, I've been interested in sports, I've been interested in history, and I've enjoyed writing from a young age. When I was like in my teens and 20s, I fancied myself a fiction author that didn't that didn't really uh didn't really pan out but uh nonfiction seems to be my uh my thing and do you still try to write fiction like in your spare time very very occasionally and very poorly i mean <laughs> I, I think i for whatever reason this is uh, uh th things that actually happen tend to be my strength yeah i think that's kind of a, a revelation that a lot of like writers have like kind of where you fit in in terms of genre in terms of writing style because i i enjoy fictional stories but i hate the process of sitting down writing description and dialogue it's just so much easier to kind of put down information that exists in a very colorful way yeah very much it's it's tough to sit there and, and, and invent a chair invent a conversation invent a dinner party invent a scene on a street whereas if, if it's if it already actually happened you can describe what actually happened it's to me it's a very i i it's it's just beyond me to do that very well so what were some of the books that had an influence on you growing up i mean certainly the power broker did which i read in college um mm -hmm. in in terms of other of other historical works um the bronx is burning i would say structurally had it had a big influence on what i've done with this current book, uh, Robert uh, uh, Jonathan Mahler's uh, book about New York in the 70s. It's simultaneously about the rise of the Yankees and the Steinbrenner, Reggie Jacks in that era, as well mm. as what's happening politically in New York, as well as the son of Sam, as well as the uh, big power outage in the summer of 77 there. So so trying to take a 360 view of a city, that, that, that book had a big influence on me. Uh, I love Jeff Perlman's books. I've, I've read those since they started coming out. His book on the Mets, the bad guys won ever since that came out in the early 2000s. I've 
been a big fan of his uh, long been a big fan of Chuck Klosterman's writing style. Um, I always like the way that he's taken kind of mundane aspects of popular culture and then interrogated them in a serious fashion. I, I, I hope in my own work that I do that too. Uh, in terms of fiction, Sinclair Lewis, uh, Evelyn Waugh, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald would be some of the names that would immediately come to mind. But uh, yeah, I, tr I try to read widely. Um, I, uh, I, I'm Right now I'm rereading an essay collection by David Foster Wallace. I, uh, I don't think I was ever smart enough to understand his fiction, but his essays like in Harper's and stuff are very funny and uh, great descriptions of aspects of American life. So uh, that's, uh, that, that's been a, a great pleasure to me now. And it's something I, I read many years ago as well. Yeah, I never got bit by the uh, Foster Wallace bug, but I know there was a lot of people that really identified with his work and that sort of like postmodern, like these crazy sweeping epics that are like 800 pages long. But the only author I, that did something like that for me was James Ellroy, who wrote like L.A. Confidential. Oh, yeah. LA Quartet. I, yeah. That that dude is one of the greatest interviewees ever. It doesn't 100%. matter what subject he's talking about. He's just great to listen to. I read L.A. Confidential. I read... I forget the other book of his I read. It was part of some trilogy, but I only read the Ameri first one. American Tabloid? It, I, yes. Yeah, it's about part the of the uh, assassination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, oh, I, I, El Elroy's the man. I, I mean, I think he's great. I think I enjoy hearing him being interviewed as much as I do his books, though. Um, Agreed. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Wallace, yeah, for whatever reason, I like his nonfiction better. I mean, his fiction, I'm sure, is great. I'm just, I'm just I'm not the person to read it. Uh, maybe, again, that's telling about my uh, nonfiction kind of tendencies anyway. Yeah. Klosterman too just came out with a book about the nineties that I don't know if you've read yet, but I definitely want to check it oh, out. I, I have a, uh, a review of it coming up in a couple of months in American history magazine. It's uh, well worth your time. It's very interesting. I, I didn't know what to expect and it, it was very different than, than, than any of his other books, but still very enjoyable. I thought. Was it like a, a good review, bad review? Any sneak peek? Oh, entirely positive review, entirely cool. positive review. Um, I, I actually do a fair number of book reviews. I'm a kind of a funny person in that I think I, I tend to give fairly upbeat reviews most of the time. And I, and I think ever since I published my own book, I became, as a reviewer, I probably became more upbeat just knowing what it takes to get it done. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's made me hard, made, probably made me a worse reviewer because um, I, I, I guess... I, I guess I'm more generous in my views of what works and doesn't work in books, just having a, a better sense of the bare bones of get it, getting one together. Um, but uh, I mean, I certainly like that one. And, and part of it's a matter of self-selection. I do it as a freelancer. So I tend to pick the books I review. So they tend to be things that are of interest to me. So that probably plays a, plays a role in it as well. Yeah. Well, there's always like that eternal battle between those who do and those who write about those who do, right? It's like, it's like if you're an athlete, you criticize sports writers and say, well, you shouldn't write about me because you can't do what I do. Or if you are a filmmaker, you know, don't go after movie critics. And there's sort of that battle that I think does keep each other honest. But if you do do what you're writing about, it does kind of create a little bit more empathy for those who do. Yeah, I, I can't do anything, but I have an opinion on just about everything. So that, that right. works well for me. <laughs> what about uh, like football books in particular? Is there any that really stuck I mean, out to everybody you? You've had, everybody you've had on your show. Based, I mean, man, Michael McCambridge's books are my Bible in particular. I mean, America's Game. I, I can't really? think of a book I, I enjoyed reading more. It's one of maybe three books that I've ever read that the minute I finished it, I started reading it again because I just had such a, such a good time hanging out with George Wallace and, and Bidwill and all these other characters from the early NFL. I did that with John Eisenberg's The League as well, which is just such a fantastic 
uh, NFL history too. I don't know if you've had him on. Uh, he's, he's great. No. He actually did one of the, one of the blurbs for my book, which was awfully generous to him. I love Jack Yeldon's book about the uh, Unitas and uh, Shula relationship. Yeah. Read that not long ago. That's a great book. Um, uh, I'm trying to think other, uh, I, I love the, I saw that you reviewed uh, the, the last season of Weave Eubank. I love that book. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. It was a, my, my mom's a Jets fan. I'm a Jets fan. She'd had that book from long ago sitting on a shelf and I picked it up one day. And I think just a fascinating, I, I love those, those season in the making type books, instant replay, Jerry Kramer, that whole, whole genre. So I, uh, I, I, I try to read widely in football history and it's it, football is by far my favorite sport. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting there like baseball season's going. I'm I'm watching like all the USFL games and stuff like that. I don't care. I mean, you know, right. I, I was like, I'll be a Michigan Panthers fan. I had no particular connection. They're zero two right now. The God, that I I think they got to replace Shea Patterson with Paxton Lynch. I mean, uh, that dude coming out of college seemed like something else, but it just hasn't worked out for him. I hope he gets a shot in uh, uh, under Jeff Fisher, though. Well, always counting Jeff Fisher to kind of hold a quarterback back. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. But I, I, I saw a, a little bit of the first week of the USFL and I was impressed in the first quarter and impressed in the fourth quarter. And then that was kind of it. But it's probably going to be one of those leagues I'll tune in every now and then. But when it's off season, I'm always going to be looking to watch a game on YouTube from the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, as opposed to watching. And I'm probably in the minority of people because I don't think there's a lot of people who would spend time watching games on YouTube like I do in the off season. But I, I guess from what I've seen, it's starting to pick up some steam and people are enjoying the product so far. You know, I, I did that recently when the, when the Bengals got to the AFC title game, I watched was, is it called the freezer bowl? Is that the one with the chargers? The ice. Uh, the, uh, the, the no, ice actually, okay. no, 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 no. You're all right. It is the freezer bowl. Because I, because I wanted to give it a little bit. I, I'd never sat down and watched that game before. I, I was just, they would not play that game. They would have canceled that game, held up the next day or something. Not have those guys and, you know, 59 degree below zero wind chill and stuff. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's funny to me watching the NFL from like 40 years ago. Cause I think is the NFL in 1980 more like the NFL in 1940 or the NFL in 2020. And I vacillate on, on my view of that, but watching that game, I feel like the, the 1980s, a lot more like 1940, just that they, that they would put the guys out there like that um, and, and play in those conditions. Uh, I, I feel like now I'd be very surprised if that happened. Yeah, I think if you were probably going to look in terms of like the overall style of play, you would probably have to say it's probably more closer to it is now than in the 40. But I think when you look at the athlete and the culture surrounding football, it's certainly more closer to 1940. Right. Because like 1980, I think, is a big transitional year when the game did get corporatized and there was a lot more value yeah. on the passing game. But you still look at these guys just laying out hits all over the place. Like, you know, you got Ronnie Lyon, obviously you have Lawrence Taylor. You just have these guys who are out looking to put a lick on someone where I think there does exist now that kind of player, but it's not as vicious as it was. Okay, let's say there's a bad USFL game this weekend. What would be a YouTube game you'd recommend for me to put on that I'd have no frame of reference for? 1985 Chargers uh, Raiders. 85 Chargers. Okay, what's what's okay? So that's post. That's that's post Raiders being in the Super Bowl. Fouts is still there late in his career, right? That's, yeah, that's he that. he retires by 1988. He. Okay. Uh, the Chargers weren't having that good of a year. I think they might have still been in the playoff race at that point. Uh, the Raiders had Mark Wilson as their quarterback, who I guess was kind of like a middleman between Plunkett and um, God, I don't even remember who came in. Uh, it might have been Raider, 
Jay Schrader comes in because they because the trade with Washington, right? They might have been that. It might have been him then. But it, it's one of those games where I actually found out about it for a weird reason. So there was actually after that game a heist at the stadium. There were really th- yeah, there were three robbers that came in and robbed the payroll, the ticket sales from that game, and the money was never found. Crap. Yeah. So how is that not a movie? Yeah, seriously, it's like the perfect. There's like one Jim Brown movie about a, a high set of football stadium, but this one would be perfect. And I looked at that game on YouTube just because I was like, well, I wonder how the game was. And it was one of the best games I've ever seen. Is there a book or did somebody write an essay? I got to read that. Or No, I, I've tried looking into this, but you can't really find too much aside from like some San Diego Tribune articles about it. But if you go on newspapers.com, I'm sure they're going to have maybe some more deeper information or if you're one of the investigators or even the robbers <laughs> listening to this, come on out. But uh, that's a game I would recommend. I mean, it's it's high oh. scoring, but it's got some great defensive plays too. It's got a lot of variety in terms of formations, offensive plays. The crowd is into it. It's beautiful in San Diego that time. I, I definitely will check it out. See, I automatically assumed it was in LA because you're like, okay, the you know Raiders, their fans are rough around the edges, kind of thing. I figured it was a Raider, you know, like some. Raiders fan went off or something, but uh, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't figure it was in San Diego. Wow. Yeah. And LA is usually the perfect place to commit those kind of crimes. And they were all like motorcycle too. They were like motorcycle bandits. Oh, wow. Like, you know, place beyond the pines sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now walk me through the genealogy from the, uh, the idea of the book, from what I understand you originally wanted to do something different and narrow down your focus to doing sports teams in Atlanta, right? Yeah, it started out. It was, the book actually started when I was a graduate student. I had I had to write writing a dissertation as part of getting your PhD. It's just your final long, cumulative, multi hundred kind of boring uh, page uh, project you have to complete. And I wanted to write about something. It was going to be about the history of cities because that's my area of expertise. I wanted to tie in sports in some respect. Initially, my idea was I wanted to write a, a history North American wide of franchise relocations like going into all the details of what's happening in all the cities. My advisor kind of patted me on the head and said, Clayton, that's nice. It will take you 50 years to do that. Pick a city that's emblematic of the changes you want to cover in your story. Um, And there's no city more emblematic of it than Atlanta. Atlanta basically invents the model that cities use to try to get pro sports franchises. They're the first city to really go go put itself out there to the big four leagues and say, we want to be a major pro sports town. We're open for business. They they court the major pro sports leagues in the same way they courted um, uh, a large cor- uh, a factory from another part of the country or a branch plant from a large corporation. Uh, they roll onto the red carpet. They make these huge offers of public investments, first in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, which becomes the home of the Falcons and the Braves, and then the Omni Coliseum, which becomes the home of the NBA Hawks. And the, uh, and the flames of the NHL who were there from 1972 to 1980. Um, so many other cities, including San Diego, I'm wearing a hat of. Um, I'm not sure why I have a San Diego hat on right now. I often end up wearing this on podcasts when I don't comb my hair. Um, <laughs> but uh, in San Diego, Tampa, Houston, New Orleans, Jacksonville, Charlotte, um, so many of these cities adopt exactly the approach Atlanta takes and get big league teams of their own. So the rise of pro sports in the Sun Belt is in many ways um, a response to what happens in Atlanta, that cities see that it's possible. Um, it also creates an arms race among cities that you have, um, you know, Cleveland or Philadelphia or Detroit, these northern cities, these traditional markets that all of a sudden have to fend off efforts to poach their teams 
from uh, newly aspirant cities in the south and west. Um, so you you create the business model of pro sport uh, that becomes the blade, the modern business model of pro sports based on what happens in Atlanta, this arms race. And also you see a similar response in a lot of these places where Atlanta got a lot of teams really fast and it didn't quite work out as city leaders anticipated. They figured it would be this source of prestige and unity. It really wasn't exactly that either. The, the team struggled and then, and then on the field and they also struggled in the standings. Um, by the mid-1970s, things were quite dire and that's when the term Loserville, uh, it comes from an article in the Atlanta Constitution um, profiling what had happened in Atlanta's first decade in pro sports. So getting back to the timeline of this, I come up with the idea of, of doing it on Atlanta. I have no connection to Atlanta whatsoever. So it takes several years of doing newspaper research, visiting Atlanta, visiting archives, interviewing people. I did, a, I get roughly 50 interviews for this book um, with political leaders, athletes, and I would say most significantly longtime Atlanta sports fans, people who, who remember these events, who can tell you what it was like to sit in a crowd of 700 people at a Braves game on a Tuesday night. People who remember what it's like, the excitement of the Falcons coming to town or what it's like when the Flames leave town, these different aspects of the experience. And that in many ways, their, uh, their stories color the, uh, uh, more than what happens in terms of the financing of stadiums or the box scores of games. I mean, we go into the details of all four of the franchises. We go into the politics. But I, I, I put a lot of emphasis on the human element of the story, on what it felt like to be a, to be a sports fan in this city in this particular time period. Uh, so it took me five, six years to do the dissertation. And from there, it took me a while to convert it into a book. A book has a very different feel than a dissertation. Dissertations largely to fulfill, uh, to fulfill an academic requirement. So I had to turn it into a genuine story. And I did that in the process of making it a book. So rather than 50 years, my advisor thought this would take me um, from the time I started my dissertation until the book came out in February it was 10 years. So I guess I saved myself 40 years in the process. Yeah, well, the guy that wrote the book about uh, the CIA and Charles Manson that came out not too long oh, yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. Chaos. Yeah, that originally mm -hmm. started off as like an article and he spent the next 20, 30 years writing, turning it into a book. I saw him on some podcast. That sounds really, I, I should read that. It sounds really interesting. Do you remember the first person that you interviewed? First person I interviewed for the book was, let me think, a pitcher named Ron Reed who played for the Braves from, he was actually the pit, the starting pitcher the night that, Hank Aaron broke baseball's all-time home run record. Mm. Um, he was great. He, he, he ran a tent company or something. I called him on the phone. He just kind of, for a few minutes, wanted to figure out who I was and why I wanted to talk to him. And then we had a great 45-minute chat, and uh, it all went from there. I talked with, I think, about eight or nine guys that played for the Falcons, talked with a few guys who played for the Flames, a bunch of Braves, uh, a couple of guys who played for the Hawks. Then some of the political leaders. I talked to a guy who was the mayor. I talked to another number of other prominent political figures in the city as well. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a mixture of people I talked to. I mean, part of the issue is a lot of the people that I would most want to talk to are, were either either dead or uh, rather old at the time. I mean, um, one of the key figures in the book is a guy named Sam Massell, who was the mayor from 1969 to 1973. And he just died about two weeks ago. He was well into his nineties. Um, but we had a, we had a great like two and a half, three hour conversation a bunch of years ago now, which was a huge help to the book. Now, prior to 65, when the Braves and the Falcons had come, what do you think was the problem with trying to get uh, a foothold in Atlanta for professional sports? Because obviously you have, 
at least from a football perspective, you have other upstart leagues like the All-American Football Conference that try to establish leagues in the South, uh, the Miami Seahawks, most notably in my mind. Like, what do you think took so long to get like a professional sports presence in Atlanta, given that it's one of the biggest metropolitan, if not the biggest one in the South, especially at that time? Well, there's a few different dynamics to it. I mean, Atlanta's rise as a city really doesn't happen until after World War II. It is not until 1959 that they have a million residents in their metro area. So they're only like the 27th, 28th largest metro area when they're starting to get pro sports. But they're certainly seen as a city on the rise because they have people coming from other parts of the money. Frankly, the South was much poorer than the other parts of the country. I mean, until really until well into the 20th, late in the 20th century. I mean, the the average income in Georgia was roughly a third less than the national average as, as late as the as late as 1960. So people need discretionary income to afford to go to games. People in Georgia just didn't have that until Atlanta started getting a lot of corporations from other parts of the country investing there. Certainly from the perspective of the big leagues and the civil rights era, this is an aspect to it too. The South was frankly embarrassing to a lot of these leagues. The footage coming out of places like Birmingham and New Orleans and stuff and Montgomery during this time period is nothing you wanted your league associated with. One of the reasons Atlanta gets pro sports ahead of a lot of these other cities is Atlanta is a lot more progressive on these issues. From the late 1940s onward, you have tens of thousands of black voters in Atlanta where voting is suppressed for most African-Americans and other parts of the South. And part of the city's political governing coalition from the late 1940s is the city's uh, black minority, um, which it, it's a, it remains a minority until roughly 1970 when Atlanta becomes a majority black city. So this combination of Atlanta's business and professional class, and then virtually every black voter, that is the governing coalition in Atlanta. So they're ahead of the curve relative to much of the rest of the region in this time period. They're seen as being an oasis relative to much of the rest of the Jim Crow South, including the rest of, Al- including the rest of Georgia. So that, that also plays a role in Atlanta eventually getting it too. And I would say in a broader sense also, people in the Southeast didn't necessarily see themselves as deprived of pro sports. They had a lot of their own sporting passions before that, whether it's Georgia and Georgia Tech in particular football uh, in this time period, both of whom had rabid fan bases. I mean, Georgia Tech has certainly faded in recent decades, but well into the 1960s, people who were Georgia Tech alums would keep uh, that fact out of their obituaries because if they mentioned they were a Tech alum, the day after their funeral, they would start getting phone calls from people saying, hey, you got any tickets? Did you, you know, did, did, are season tickets available because, you know, grandpa died kind of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, the support for Georgia Tech was rabid. The historically black colleges in Atlanta, uh, Clark and Atlanta University, which later merge, um, uh, Morehouse had very uh, prominent football programs regionally as well and a lot of support. Um, high school football certainly is a great local passion. I mean, the Braves had a problem. Uh, when they got to town, there would be 10 or 12 games in Fulton County alone on a Friday night that had 10,000 people at them. And the Braves were struggling to get a few thousand people oftentimes on Friday night. So uh, certainly football at many levels was a great passion. Outdoor activities like boating and, and golfing and fishing had, had uh, and uh, tennis had wide uh, bases of support in the region. Minor league baseball had been wildly popular professional wrestling had a huge base of support in the Southeast too. I mean, Georgia championship wrestling every Friday night filled up a uh, 5,000 seat armory that uh, was built during the Cleveland administration. Um, well, well into the time period after um, uh, well into the time period after pro sports comes to town, stock car racing was getting hundred thousand people a couple of times a year in Atlanta, plus having dozens of dirt tracks throughout the state. 
So people had all kinds of uh, great local sporting passions before the big leagues ever got there. So I think the idea that they, they were missing out on something turned out to be something that more, I guess, the civic elites thought because they thought of themselves relative to other cities. If you're just a person from Atlanta who likes sports, you had a very full sporting calendar before the Braves or Falcons or anybody else got to town. So would you say that this initiative to bring all the pro sports was something that was more of an image builder from public officials than an actual demand from the citizens? Well, I mean, image building is part of it, but I I think this, and it was certainly a top-down kind of thing. The mayor, Ivan Allen, was the guy pushing it more than anybody. The Chamber of Commerce, which he had previously been the head of, is pushing it. Uh, The city council was pushing it. So the city's elite is very strongly behind this. I don't think it was purely an image thing, though. They really viewed pro sports as being a something that would be culturally significant to the city, an amenity that any big city should have. But they often spoke of things like sports are a luxury and a city of our significance deserves luxuries, that this is something we need to give our people. They had this kind of noblesse oblige, noblesse oblige attitude about sports. And I think also they saw it as being a potential unifier, because even though Atlanta was more progressive than a lot of its peers, um, there were certainly racial divides in the region. There were divides between urban and suburban. There were divides between um, the large number of transplants who would come to the region and locals. So uh, pro sports was seen by city leaders as a um, sort of an axis to build around. They spoke about Atlanta Fulton County Stadium when it opened as Atlanta's new center of gravity, that it would be something that everybody could agree upon. It would become what later uh, came to be known as water cooler conversation kind of thing, pro sports something that everybody could at least have an opinion on and, and share in to some extent. It didn't quite work out that way, but that was, I, I mean, I think the intentions were incredibly noble on the part of the city leaders. And even though the title of the book, you know, is kind of snarky, I, I, I don't really have any cynicism about the guys who are the city leaders this time. I, I, I disagree with some of the choices they made, particularly using urban renewal land to build a stadium, I think was an atrocious decision. But I think they very earnestly were trying to do something they thought would be beneficial to their community. And in some ways, it certainly was. Yeah, I think, like you mentioned, when you have so many different, especially when you have two different big time college football programs and you have different minor league baseball and you have so many options, I think having something that you're going to see on national TV can probably provide a little bit of cohesiveness across the city, especially during that time when it seems like there was a lot of uh, things to be separate about. Absolutely. I mean, even when when things are going well, um, like in 1969, the Braves win the National League West. It's the first year of the divisional configuration of baseball, and they host two home playoff games against the New York Mets. They draw roughly 50,000 people to both games. It's not quite a full house, but it's very good. Those are only the fifth and fourth and fifth best drawing sporting events in Atlanta that in the Atlanta area that weekend. Number one is the Georgia football game about an hour and a half down the road in Athens. Mm -hmm. Number two is the Georgia Tech game. Number three is the Falcons game, which is actually played at Georgia Tech because the uh, the baseball games were there that weekend displacing it. And it was the first time Johnny Unitas came and played in Atlanta. So they got they had a rabid standing room only crowd people. A lot of them cheering on Johnny Unitas because they've never gotten the chance to see him before. So football was certainly king and it was really college football that was king, even though the, 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 the Falcons, despite not being very good, actually drew very well in the early years. Things eventually turned south, but people had a lot of enthusiasm for them. I mean, if you look at the team's uniform initially, the colors were in part supposed to be a comp because there was some gold incorporated initially in the uniform uniform. They were supposed to combine the colors of Georgia tech and Georgia that we could tech at the tech and Georgia fans can finally agree on something and it will be the Falcons. 
Well, I guess they agreed to ignore them eventually, but. Uh, was uh, Tommy Nobis a big reason why the Falcons had a draw in the beginning? I mean, Nobis was certainly a big aspect of him. I mean, being the guy who displaces Joe Namath as having the big contract. And he was a, a fantastic player. I, I think they would have drawn well anyway, at least initially, there would be a honeymoon effect. Mm-hmm. And I think also just the aspect of people wanting to get the chance to go see the Packers play or the Rams or the Colts, that would have been an attraction for people in the Southeast who had heard of these teams and seen them before. But, but Novus, Novus, I think certainly kept people coming. And I think is to me is one of the most underrated players in NFL history. I mean, he was recently up for the hall of fame and I mean, by his peers, he was on, he was on the NFL all sixties team. And in that time period was voted on the uh, all seventies team as well. Uh, many people thought he was nearly as good as Dick Butkus during his time period. I, I, I haven't seen enough myself of both of them to, to, to have a, a firm opinion. But, uh, I mean, Nobus was certainly highly respected by his peers and in many ways became the face of their franchise, uh, for better or worse. He was kind of a he was kind of a quiet guy. And a lot of times when things weren't going well, they basically asked Tommy to kind of answer for it. And he had some run ins with the press as a result of it, but remains a very respected uh, figure in the city, even, even even after he's died, I uh, had the pleasure to interview him a few years before he passed away. And he's, first of all, a consummate gentleman, and second of all, had lots of interesting insights into his his time playing in Atlanta, which was a which was a real treasure for him uh, that uh, that experience. Yeah, I think it was Zonka that said, "If if I had to play between, uh, if I had to go up against Nobus or Butkus, I'd choose Butkus." <laughs> wow, that's yeah, it's quite the uh, quite the quite the endorsement. Yeah, well, and I mean, to your point about him being underrated, I mean, I, I really got into football history, I guess, later on in high school. And my dad is from Griffin, Georgia, which. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Yes. So now I, I guess now it's probably about a couple hours away. But he said back in those days he could get to Atlanta in an hour, maybe even a little less. Uh, and he told me about and this is something you mentioned in your book about the grits blitz, which I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, I'd always known about the steel curtain or the purple people eaters or the fearsome foursome. But when you see like highlights of, you know, the Falcons probably in the mid to late seventies, just sending like nine guys <laughs> at the quarterback, you're like, my God, this defense was actually good. If they had an offense that was competent, they could have really done something. Yeah. In the long run, I think that's going to be Jerry Glanville's legacy. I mean, if he, I mean, he was a very outlandish coach and colorful and a lot of people liked him. A lot of people disliked him, certainly. But 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 looking back, I mean, in many ways, the the way the pass rush is utilized in the 1980s is strongly influenced by what they were doing in Atlanta and had one of the best defenses in the league, even though they certainly couldn't move the ball for much of that time period. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're a very interesting team. Now, what about in terms of the decision to join the NFL as opposed to the uh, AFL? Was this something that was kind of a, a tough decision to make in the beginning? Was there a preference for one that fell out and they ended up joining the other? What were sort of the circumstances surrounding the decision? Well, the AFL and NFL could agree on one thing, certainly with Atlanta from about 1960 to about 1964. They simply didn't give them the time of day. I mean, the AFL briefly considered giving Atlanta one of its original expansion franchises, but uh, Baron Hilton complained that he didn't have anybody on the West Coast with him. So instead of giving Atlanta the final AFL bid, they gave it to uh, what becomes the Oakland Raiders uh, to be the rival of his uh, L.A. Chargers. Um, Atlanta tries to do, there are a whole bunch of uh, crazy examples of Atlanta businessmen, some large businessmen, some rather small businessmen finding ways to try to get pro football to Atlanta, um, setting up essentially a record set stadiums out in the middle of nowhere in a cornfield and bringing in exhibition games and not going quite as expected. Um, finally, once Atlanta starts building a stadium, once they break ground on one, it's because they've signed a contract with the Braves. 
suddenly the two leagues are just fighting it out uh, for, for access to this new stadium in this big, in this growing market. One, one aspect of Atlanta's market that's significant to think about is it's, it really wasn't like the 27th or 28th biggest market. It really was probably, probably like a top 10 market at this point because for the entire Southeast, it was the media hub. So you have six, seven states around it that have no pro sports whatsoever. The uh, Major League Baseball saw that. The NFL sees this too. Uh, so they're just fighting tooth and nail to get this city. Um, the, there are twin offers um, by the leagues by the summer of 1965. A guy named Leonard Wrench, who was an executive at WSB, which was Atlanta's CBS affiliate, held the AFL uh, bid. Uh, the NFL bid ended up going to a guy named Rankin Smith, who was an insurance salesman. Uh, and the uh, the former fraternity brother of Carl Sanders, Georgia's governor, basically Sanders convinced Smith to make this investment, you know, on behalf of the state kind of thing. It'll be good for Georgia if you do this. He was a football fan, a fairly casual one, though, I gather. And um, Atlanta ends up picking the NFL in part because they see it as being more prestigious. I mean, it, this is before the merger or anything. And Atlanta says, OK, the NFL is number one. We want to be number one. They go with this. Um, I think they, within a year or two, come to realize this was probably the wrong way to go. Uh, the bid that, that was going to be the Falcons ends up becoming the Miami Dolphins. They actually do pretty well pretty quickly. The Falcons struggle for years to come. They end up getting stuck in the Western Division, traveling more than any team in the NFL as a result of it, getting pummeled by, by their rivals out there year after year. Um, Smith relies largely on family and friends to run the Falcons for many years. They are a mom and pop operation, not being run in the way that most of the other franchises are and have some absolutely atrocious drafts in the late 60s and early 70s and just set themselves many years behind the other franchises in the league. Um, doing this project made me realize the significance of ownership to the success of a team. I guess I knew it already, but just seeing it hands on with an organization like the Falcons um, makes it very clear you need to have experts running these things because they just whether or not they're good businessmen in some other business. It doesn't mean you're going to be good at running a football team. It's a very specific business with lots of specific knowledge. And just because you're good at selling insurance doesn't mean you're going to be good at running an NFL team. And the Smiths ran the Falcons for 35 years, were, I will say, incredibly well-liked by all of the players I spoke with, were well-treated by them, felt like a part of their family, um, found Smith to be a very kind guy and an easy guy to deal with. They just weren't running things the way other teams in the league were, and they fell behind year after year as a result of it. They don't make the NFL playoffs until 1978. Uh, in 30 of their first 35 years, they're below average in attendance in the league. Uh, their TV ratings stunk for quite a while. Um, it, it, it was a very tough operation for uh, the early decades of the Falcons' existence. Did you find that the family was too much involved in the process when they shouldn't have been because they didn't know what they were doing or they were just too laissez-faire and didn't really give too much credence to it? They were just kind of running the business side of it. It depended on the time period. They kind of did both at different times. I mean, probably the most egregious mistake they made was um, one of the vice presidents of Rankin Smith, a guy named Frank Wall, became their general manager, the first one, their first GM. And his 1968 draft class, not one of the guys, or no, 1967 draft class, their second team, not one of the guys made the team <laughs> of, 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 an ex, of a team that was one year out for being a 3-11 and expansion team. If you can't find anybody to upgrade the talent, you've got a significant problem going on there. And you had so a lot they, of rounds too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> going through a million rounds and just all these guys getting cut. So they were they were dealing with other teams' spitbacks. I think also an issue is the Falcons roster is 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 
That's about as bad in his expansion roster is going to be, though, because you have the other league taking all the sapping off hundreds of other talented players you could potentially sign. So you're getting the spitbacks of other teams and then guys that weren't weren't good enough for the other league, too. So they were in a very, very tough position. Do you think their fortune would have been a little different, too, if they didn't get played in the Western Division? I, I, it certainly didn't help. I mean, I mean, the travel they, they were traveling thousands of more miles a season than any other team as a result of their schedule configuration for much of their time period in that division. Um, I mean, the NFL's division's structure has been very was very crazy for a very long time. It's certainly a lot more rational, uh, rational now. But uh, yeah, it was they were in a very bad position. But they were also the the new kid on the block, and they they were treated that way by the rest of the league. I mean, it, my impression is that the league's owners very much had the notion that you had to. Uh, I guess, earn your position uh, within the hierarchy of, uh, uh, of the teams. And the Falcons were certainly at the bottom, bottom of it for a very long time. Yeah, for a while, they were stuck in that Western division too with them. And whenever New Orleans came in, they were all part of the, uh, the 49ers. Uh, Rams, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, they were all part of that same division. That just had to be a pain. And I don't know like who could have thought about doing that. Like, why didn't you restructure sooner? But <laughs> and it's supposed to the uh the bucks and the what's it called the the packers in the central were, division the yeah. Forest of, yeah, yeah it was so like weird. it's like dude this just doesn't match up but i mean i guess you'll take it because i mean that was actually a pretty good forgotten rivalry too yeah yeah absolutely that was always very funny to be that that whole division configuration uh i love speaking of speaking of books uh the yucks by jason i can't think of his last name that's a really interesting book about the early years you know what i'm talking about yeah, with the uh, years of, Hugh Culverhouse and yeah, about, guys, yeah, about that. Yeah, the early years of the Buccaneers. That's a really Jason. Uh, let me Google it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that one. That one's been on my list for a while. There's always football books that I have to get to, but there's just so many of them, you know. Jason, I think Vick V U I C K got a great cover too with uh, uh, Bucko Bruce on it and stuff. Did you ever? Uh, did you read the league? Oh yeah, oh love the league. One of not, my favorites. Not not the uh, the Eisenberg one. The, talking, uh, oh, the David Harris one. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that had that had a yeah that had I I referenced it several times in my book. I mean, it's yeah. just such a such such a bible for that era of the league in terms of the institutional history of it. Yeah, that's a great book. He's an interesting guy. You know, he was married to Joan Baez, the folk singer. Was he really? Yeah, like he was like in the sixties. He was like a political radical. Like he went to jail for protesting. Yeah the draft and stuff and yeah. then like he later on becomes like a football business writer i mean he's had a i don't know the entire uh, swath of his career but he got those are kind of two very different uh uh two different uh places in the universe he ended up yeah i mean it, it, a guy like that based off his previous history you really wouldn't anticipate being a massive football fan but i mean the guy always loved the game and he was actually supposed to write another book too about the uh a similar book to the league about 20th century fox Oh, about really? the inner work of the film studio, but for some reason that project was killed. And then I guess he focused his next project or one of the subsequent ones on uh, Bill Walsh, the uh, the genius book. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I didn't read that though, but it, that's on my list because I think he's a terrific writer. I mean, to take that amount of information and to intertwine it all that seamlessly. Oh, it's just such an epic story the way he tells it. And you really get the personalities of all the owners. I, yeah, I, 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 that book actually got me into being interested in the owners. I didn't really care that much about it before I read that book. But then I had, like I said, this is what Clint Murchison's like. This is what, uh, you know, Gene Klein is like. So you have all these different yeah. teams, this idea of the different different owners. Yeah, that's a really great one. Yeah, I, I've told people in the past that, you know, it, it opened, it, it, in a lot of ways, it was kind of an inspiration to start writing and to start podcasting because 
it really opened my eyes to a part of football that I knew existed, but didn't give much consideration to. And it was a story that just really blew my mind. I'd put it in the category of McCambridge's American gate America's game. Like reading that is just a gateway to reading other stuff because it gives you a foundation to think about the stuff. Like the league gives you a foundation in the business part as does, you know, I I think actually the combination of reading Harris and reading Eisenberg really gives you a set tilt up until like 1985 gives you a sense of the institutional history of the league. You read America's game, you get some of that, but then you also get the on the field stuff. I mean, that would be really a great trio of books. If one wants to be like somebody who's, really invested in reading about football history to read those three to start out with. Yeah. My sister got me Eisenberg's book. Um, I think last year, but I still haven't gotten around to reading it, but everybody tells me it was a terrific book because did he, didn't he also write the other uh, book about the, uh, the 10 gallon war. war. Yeah. That's yeah. really good too. Yeah. It's a really good book too. Yeah. I've, I've heard some interviews and it sounds like he's you know very passionate about the subject. So I definitely have to check those out. Um, now, as far as like the, uh, Braves Falcons relationship you talk about in the book how a lot of the uh Falcons players felt they were second class citizens compared to the Braves how did the Braves sort of because obviously like you've mentioned you're you're in a city that has a lot of different transplants so you're going to find people who are rooting for the opposite team more often than not um how are the Braves sort of a little more successful in finding public support than the Falcons I mean was Hank Aaron really the main driving force behind that or was that something that you know there really wasn't that much more public support for the Braves it was just something the Falcons had felt for one reason or another I I think the Braves had marginally more support than the Falcons I do think Aaron's part of it I mean he's the most famous baseball player in the country for a several year period I, I think in terms of the second I'll go back to the second class citizen aspect for part of it I think that's just a uh, logistical matter of the Braves playing 81 dates there as opposed to the Falcons playing seven and then eight they're, they're almost clearly going to have a lot more sense of ownership over the park, be a lot more familiar with it. Uh, I mean, they both complained about one another having an impact on the way the field, the, the, the shape the field was in. Um, I, I think, I, but yeah, it certainly seemed like the the Braves facility and then the Falcons were very eager. Uh, they ended up moving on to Swanee and uh, having their own facility in the very late seventies. And, and I think that was a huge help to the franchise to have, have a little bit of space of their own. I, I think the Braves also had the advantage uh relative to the Falcons of being clearly the number one baseball team in town because the crackers, the minor league team disappears once the Braves uh, end up in Atlanta, whereas the Falcons are probably at best the third, I mean, they're the third most popular football team in Atlanta uh, for much of this time period. I mean, if you compare like the coaches, Vince Dooley would have a coaches show at Georgia. Pepper Rogers had one at Georgia tech. Those got like eight times as many viewers as the Falcons, you know, and Lehman Bennett or whoever had, had his coaches show with the Falcons. They those had, you know, friends and family or something were watching those show. Whereas like half the state of Georgia is watching Vince Dooley go over game field and film against Tennessee and stuff. So it's, uh, it, it's just a very different relationship people have to those, uh, to, to those teams. I mean, part of it is that those are long tenured civic institutions in the way that say the Yankees or Red Sox or the New York giants or something are in a Northern city that my dad followed Georgia tech and his dad followed them. And it's, you know, our family tradition kind of thing. The Falcons were something new. They were in many ways like a consumer product. Either you can choose to use your free time this way or not. It's not the emotional attachment people had to the not only the Falcons, but all the new Atlanta teams was very different than things that have been there for many generations. And I think it's, I don't think they've ever quite caught up in that respect. Maybe the Braves a little bit, because I, I feel like I've spoken with a lot of people who, ha, who have a 
great nostalgia for them being on TBS every night, whether or not they're, they're Atlanta residents or not. Well, they could live in Bismarck, North Dakota, but because it was broadcast everywhere, watching Braves baseball when, when all the teams in the major leagues weren't broadly available um, for a lot of people is, is the way they learned the game. So it, they have a little bit different relationship with fans than the Falcons do in that respect. Yeah, my, my dad kind of echoes those same sentiments because I think he watched more baseball in the 90s than he did football. And being from Georgia and being that Ted Turner had owned TBS and the Braves, you know, it just made it so accessible to watch him like that. Uh, and and plus, too, I mean, to, to your comment about, you know, it might still be that way for football. I think that's certainly the case because there was one time that my buddy and I, and he's a Dallas Cowboys fan and I'm a Steelers fan, uh, but we went to a Falcons game just to see the stadium and just, to, you know, they were playing the Rams and they had just gone off, I think, the Super Bowl season. And I'm telling you, dude, we could have easily gone down to the second deck without any hassle about taking someone else's seats because, like, there were really just empty seats upon empty seats. And I know someone has told me, and whenever I showed a person that I worked with that this was pathetic, <laughs> she's like, well, you know, there's so much to do in the stadium that not everybody's giving their seats, but like, yeah, dude, like, that's not why this is happening. There, there, there was just no interest whatsoever because you can look at Dallas Stadium in Texas and they're still going to be packed wall to wall or every seat and they have plenty to do as well. So it, it definitely feels like for Atlanta, even though Matt Ryan gave them a lot of stability, that there always seems to be like this, not fair weather fan, but there seems to be like a losing interest if it doesn't really go their way. Yeah, take it or take it or leave it kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, and I think Atlanta having m- literally millions of people who are not from Atlanta there, it, it's inevitable. That's going to be the relationship to it. And I think that's okay. Different cities are going to have different relationships to teams. I mean, Georgia couldn't have Georgia and Georgia, Georgia in particular right now couldn't have better fans than they have. Georgia tech really has, a very devoted core. I mean, even though they haven't been good for a long time, you go online, Georgia Tech has a very devoted fan base, too, of people who are very nostalgic for a very different era. But, uh, yeah, and those teams certainly still have great, great popularity. It's it's a different relationship with the Falcons, certainly. I think a lot of it has to do with that Super Bowl collapse. Yeah, it's, it's very tough to recover from. I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, I grew up a Boston Red Sox fan. The Bill Buckner thing certainly had decades of <laughs> Resonance. I think in many ways it's the closest uh, parallel to that. Yeah. Well, and and plus too, like I, whenever I was at the uh, the Brave Stadium where the uh, the battery is, like the bar that's around yeah. SunTrust Park, yeah. I was talking to a guy. It was like my first month living there, a month and a half maybe after uh, a Braves game, and I brought up the Falcons, and he said he wouldn't root for the Falcons again unless they went undefeated and won the Super Bowl. <laughs> that's like dude, you're asking literally to do the two hardest things in seventy-two. Okay, I'll cheer for the 72 Dolphins. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's like I, I, I get the, the heartache, but you know, it just seems like that's something that has carried over onto the team for a while and the fan base, especially. When it comes to developing the fan bases, like among transplants, like what was Atlanta really trying to, to do? I know you mentioned they used to have buses that would take people to the games for free, but like were, were there any sort of like publicity? Public, uh, like PR strategies they would try to implement to try to get converts or transplants more enthusiastic about the Falcons as opposed to maybe where they came from originally? I, I, I would say that what the Braves, Falcons, and Hawks did was all pretty standard. The mm-hmm. only one that really stands out in my mind is the Atlanta Flames of the NHL, who very explicitly tried to say, this is an upscale commodity. This is for <laughs> rich people. Like, And they really got a very successful fan base doing this. Their earliest ad said Atlanta's ice society. And they emphasized the word 
society come out wearing furs, suits, tuxedos to the games, and people literally did because there really had been nothing like pro hockey in Atlanta before. One of the things that surprised me the most about this subject was how rabid the support for the Atlanta Flames were for several years. That It, it was the go-to evening out in Atlanta for, for upscale consumers uh, for a number of years. Their tickets were more expensive than anybody else's, which I think is still true of the NHL. NHL tickets, anytime I've gone, have been ungodly expensive. But yeah, the, the fashionable affluent set in Atlanta went to Flames games. And they, they drew very well in their early years. They end up leaving as much as anything because their owner, Tom Cousins, ended up being a part of the biggest real estate bankruptcy in U.S. history at the time uh, with the Omni International Complex, which surrounded the uh, Coliseum. It was a $100 million bankruptcy. Uh, all of a sudden, some oil men from Alberta offered him $20 million bucks for it for his team that he paid $8 million for. And it sure sounds like a good deal when you got some debts and bye-bye right. uh, flames. Um, but yeah, they were all fairly standard in terms of that. I would say over time, the Braves very much focused on having a family-friendly environment at the ballpark, ha having, you know, they got, you know, Chief Nakahoma, the mascot, and a lot of promotion. E every night became, you know, uh, you know, uh, it was like Gwinnett County resident night. It was, you know, it was, uh, um, you know, um, uh, strawberry, you know, like strawberry produce producers night. They were all very specifically tailored nights to get a couple of hundred extra people in the ballpark uh, and and that 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 helped particularly uh in the turner era one thing i think that helped over time with atlanta's teams in terms of stabilizing attendance at least in the case of the hawks and the flames was the expansion of atlanta's black middle class particularly in the 70s and 80s uh there became a much larger percentage of atlanta's black population that was earning middle class incomes for a bunch of different reasons um but as that happened um you you saw a a, a increasing the state, a larger number of African American fans attending both the Falcons and the Hawks games. This also reflects a, a transformation in terms of uh, African American fans' interests too. Up until the 1960s, in any survey, it was indicated that baseball was the most popular sport among African African American sports fans. You start to see football and basketball both displace it. And you look at Atlanta, once you had a significant population that had enough disposable income to go to the games, they were choosing to go see the Falcons and the Hawks, which I think stabilized some of their early attendance troubles uh, as well. Did you uh, reach out to Ted Turner? I did. I never heard anything back. I sent him a copy of the book. Haven't heard anything. Uh, I gather he's he's in failing health. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's he saved um, both the NBA and Major League Baseball for Atlanta. Those teams would have almost certainly left without him being willing to lose money for a bunch of years on those teams uh, to provide cheap programming for his uh, television stations. So yeah, Turner's Turner's uh, Turner's uh, a very heroic figure in this book. Yeah, I uh, I used to work for Turner Classic Movies. Oh wow! Yeah, so that he was far removed from the company, but um, I think four months in, he actually had come back to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the network. And obviously he needed a, a little help walking, you know, not the best health, but you know, he like raised his fist up and you know, everybody was cheering for him and he was happy to be back. But yeah, that, that's a town that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Arthur Blank has done a lot for the community, but Ted Turner is always going to be, always going to be King there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I will say I, Arthur Blank, boy, what an upgrade in terms of ownership that's been. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're, they aren't always successful, but at least they're being run professionally. They have guys that are football experts in play. Even if they make decisions one doesn't like, it, it's being run like other NFL teams are run. He certainly put his money where his mouth was in terms of the stadium, um, contributing a significant part, a significant amount of the money towards that. Um, so I think, I think in terms of ownership, they're one of the more stable ownership groups in the league at this point. 
As far as Loserville, the moniker, do, do you think in some ways, I mean, you talk about how, you know, in 91, that's when Deion Sanders comes to the Falcons. They, you know, kind of find their groove, really find their identity as a franchise. Obviously, you know, with Ted Turner, with the Hawks and the Braves, you know, they really, you know, establish themselves and regain their footing. And obviously you mentioned with the Flames. I mean, do, do you think the Loserville moniker, though, kind of created a little bit of a sense of apathy up until these teams really began to find you know, their place within the national sports scene and in particular with, you know, the Atlanta residents? Yes, I, I think that's the case. I mean, I think the public memory of Loserville dies out during the 1990s when you see the Falcons get better. When, once you see, I think from the late 80s onward with the Hawks, once you have like the Air Force One, Dominique Wilkins, Spud Webby, or the Hawks are one of the most exciting teams in the league. And especially with the Braves being champions year after year after year, being on television all the time. I think that 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 collectively changes the vision of Atlanta sports. I think also becoming an, an Olympic city, being a city of global significance in sports, having having the 96 summer games there plays a role in it as well. Um, the, the, the Loserville thing is really something of the 70s and the 80s. And by the 90s, that that term disappears. Before I began working on the book, I had never heard the term before. I, I learned about it just by going through the archives and seeing it time after time in the 70s and into the 80s. Did you have a different title for the book before you renamed before you chose Loserville? It was either going to be called Major League City or Loserville, and I figured Loserville would get more attention. Yeah, yeah, you were definitely right about that. What's your uh, next book about Boston? Is that a sports focused uh, book? Or yeah, my, my my second book. It's under contract with the University of Nebraska Press now. It's supposed to come out in the fall of 2023. It's about college basketball in Boston during the 1980s. Uh, you have three different NBA, you have three different Hall of Fame coaches whose careers begin in Boston during this time period with Jim Calhoun, uh, Rick Pitino, and Gary Williams. They all basically learned to apply their trade in relative obscurity, coaching at Northeastern, BU, and BC, respectively. So it's the story of the city and also it's the story of those teams and those coaches during this time period, this uh, forgotten golden age of basketball in the city. And you're in the middle of like doing interviews right now? No, I'm. I'm 85% of the way through writing the book. I've done about, did about a hundred interviews for the book. And uh, I mean, the, literally the day I turned in my final manuscript for my first, for, for, for my uh, uh, first book, I began working on my second one, getting a contract for it because I just felt like if I don't, I'll never get the second book going. So like, I just immediately started it. I mean, I, I, I turned in my final draft of my first book, like in July, 2020, uh, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, just, I kind of finished it up during the early parts of the pandemic when I had a little more, a little more free time that, yeah, it was like later in July, 2020 that I pitched to my agent, the idea of the second book and, uh, eventually got a deal. And, uh, here we are, hopefully turning it in within in a few weeks. So. Do you have, do you have ideas trickling for a uh, third, third book idea? No, I think I'm going to take a, take a little bit of a break from, from yeah. books for a few, at least for like six months, uh, thinking about a book, uh, once I, get this one turned in well you, um, you have a trilogy though i mean if it, maybe if you don't start it right yeah that's true i gotta yeah. I, I gotta think of another city to write about what did, like when by the time you finished writing loserville i mean like what about the whole process did you find the most rewarding i i just love interviewing people i thought it was fantastic to hear people tell me about their lives i i i it's it's to me, one of the great joys of, of being a historian is being able to, if it's there are people who are still, still alive, experience things, tell you about what things meant to you. I mean, you can read an account in a newspaper, but just getting a sense of, 
of, of uh, I guess, more impressionistic sense of a moment is something I, I really treasure. And I, I treasure the experiences and I guess the relationships that developed with those uh, people I, I interviewed, at least in the short term uh, as a result of it. And, and I guess making sure that people's lives don't disappear without there being a record of what they felt about things. And I, I feel a great sense of responsibility with that when I, when I write about people's lives, um, whether it's this, the current book I'm working on, or whether it's uh, Loserville. Uh, and I, I, I really love doing oral histories. And uh, I think that will be an integral part of any work uh, past or present that I'm a part of. Yeah, well said. I'm looking forward to whenever the next book comes out. Do you want to tell people where they can get the uh, Loserville book now? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's been a genuine pleasure and such a fun conversation. Um, my name is Clayton Truder. My book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all your well-known uh, online retailers. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at Clayton Truder, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks again for having me on. This has been so much fun. Yeah, of course. I'll put a, a link to the description in the description to get the book. And uh, could, I wish you continued uh, success with the book salesman. It's a good read. And I highly recommend everyone who's interested in Atlanta sports, but also 70 sports too, to check it out. All right, thanks man. Thanks so much. Aaron. Take care. Thanks for taking the time.